gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. My name is Nick Garisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in to what promises to be the greatest hour of your life. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What are talking about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kite? They are who we thought they were. We let him off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep a trick the ball down the field, boy. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. Okay, well, it might not be the greatest hour of your life, at least I hope not. It may be the best hour of your day. Okay, we need to temper expectations here. It may be an hour of your day if you listen to the whole segment. But in my debut episode of this fantasy football podcast, I'll be breaking down Matthew Barry's Top 100 Facts article on ESPN.com. I'll be talking about the facts that I learned, key takeaways, and whether or not we should apply his stances to the fantasy football season in 2020, assuming there is one. But before we do that, let's kick off with the latest fantasy news. The New England Patriots have signed quarterback Cam Newton to a one-year deal full of incentives. I'm not sure why the league continues to allow the Patriots to do things like this. It makes no sense that Cam Newton was just chilling on his couch as a free agent. Uh, He's been posting IG videos of him working out. He's looking like a beast. You're telling me that no team wanted to take a chance on this guy being healthy, the former MVP? The Bears would rather pay $20 million in a fourth-round draft pick to get Nick Foles. The Jags, I guess, would rather Gardner Minshew. Uh, Well, they're tanking, so I'll give them a pass. The Chargers would rather have Tyrod Taylor. Teams have at least three quarterbacks on their rosters right now. So you're telling me that he's not one of the best 96 quarterbacks in the world? Heck, if I were the Jets, the Dolphins, or the Bills in the AFC East, or even the AFC competitors like the Chiefs and Ravens, I would have thrown this amount of money to Cam to say, hey, come in and be the backup. Uh, We're signing you solely and entirely so New England has to go in the regular season with Jared Stenham at quarterback because it betters our chances to win the AFC and therefore to win the Super Bowl. It's absolutely mind-boggling how New England keeps lapping the field with these low-risk moves, which are possible mainly because half the NFL front offices seem incompetent. And don't give me the whole, well, I don't know, his personality in the locker room, it may not be a good fit. What that tells me is that some teams don't prioritize winning, if, if that's your excuse. His shoulder could be totally shot, and he could fail to make the team. And I still think this would be a great right process move for the Patriots because the risk is minimal, and the reward is continuing for another Super Bowl. And they weren't doing that with Jared Stidham this season. But I digress, and it's only fitting that we open up this podcast history with a rant. So let's get back to fantasy football. I think most people want to know, where should I rank Cam Newton? Where is he going to be drafted in fantasy football? 
And the two main concerns I have when evaluating Cam Newton's fantasy football outlook is first, his health. Second, his supporting cast. Uh, let's talk about his health first. I think that's what all the experts seem to be doing right now. I'm no expert, but that's what I'm going to do as well. You know, let's get to why Cam Newton was still a free agent in the first place. I mean, he hasn't played a full, healthy football season since. Well, he hasn't played a full, healthy football season in a while, but he hasn't. We haven't really seen him healthy on the field since the first half of the 2018 football season. And let's make one thing clear, because I feel like a lot of fans on Twitter are forgetting how awesome Cam Newton actually was in fantasy football. Prior to 2018, he was a top 12 fantasy quarterback, a QB1, for five of his seven healthy seasons. He was a top five option in four of the seven seasons that he's in his career. And things were heading that way in 2018, too. He had scored 19 touchdowns, and he had thrown for four interceptions in the first eight games. The Panthers were 6-2. and two. They were sitting pretty. And then everything changed when he took a vicious hit to his shoulder by, I think it was T.J. Watt on Thursday Night Football in a blowout loss to the Steelers. And, and by the way, this is all documented on All or Nothing, Amazon Prime docuseries. You can check it out there. Cam Newton was getting... No treatment in his shoulder until after the Eagles game in week six of that season. And this is because in March 2017, he had a right rotator cuff surgery and it began acting up in week six. He was icing it, but barely, but played through it from week six to, six to eight. And once that Steelers game happened and he got hit, that was kind of the turning point of 2018 Carolina Panthers season. And arguably Cam's career... Because after that, Cam struggled through six more games. He's playing like hot garbage until the Panthers mercifully shut him down after a horrendous showing against the Saints on Monday Night Football where he could barely throw the ball 10 yards downfield. It's not funny. It's not fun. Nothing's funny to me. I don't want to go out there and get embarrassed on Monday Night Football in front of everybody. He had shoulder surgery on in January 2019. He rehabbed through June of last season. Everything was reportedly fine. And then in the preseason against the Patriots, because of course that's who he was playing, he sprained his foot. And he kind of limped through the first two games of the season on that foot or on that one leg. He had five rushes for negative two yards in his first two games. And if you followed Cam Newton at all throughout his career, you can definitely vouch for the fact that he was not healthy if his rushing numbers were five rushes for negative two yards in those two games. Uh, both were losses, by the way. Zero touchdowns, three turnovers. Uh, yeah, he wasn't healthy. I mean, there's really no—you can hate Cam all you want, but there's really no debating that he was not healthy in the 2019 season before they shut him down. And the Panthers moved on, so here we are. He's had about 10 months for his foot to heal. A lot of doctors or football doctors that I've been reading about on Twitter have said that the recovery for this type of Liz Frank injury or surgery is about 10 to 12 months. So he's kind of right at that process where, okay, he can start getting back to full strength. And the shoulder injury is kind of still in play. You don't want his arm to get weaker as the season progressed like it did in 2018, especially if it gets hit. Um, now, you can make the argument – and plenty of experts will, that Cam is washed up and may never return to healthy form. 
but he can still be relevant in fantasy. I think most experts will slot him as a backup quarterback in fantasy, as in after 12 quarterbacks are taken in your drafts, then Cam Newton can be considered. When I start to look at Cam, I'm not even really entertaining him until quarterback 12. I think, you know, once you get to that backup range, like Big Ben, Ryan Tannehill, Jared Goff, Baker Mayfield, Daniel Jones, that's kind of where I see him going because all of those guys have major question marks too. And they arguably don't have the upside that Cam Newton has. Uh, and before we talk about that upside, let's keep in mind his supporting cast here. He's That's the second thing to consider that I said. He's got a really good offensive line. This is probably actually the best offensive line he's ever played with in his career. The Panthers didn't exactly surround him with uh, world-beating offensive linemen. Uh, he kind of made the best of that uh, with his scrambling and, and mobility. But his wide receivers are awful. And his tight end situation is a barren wasteland. Somebody beat us here. It's all gone. I mean, Julian Edelman, age 34. Edelman's a good receiver, but again, he's seemingly always battling injuries. Mohamed Sanu also had was injured last season after the Patriots trade, traded for him. Second round pick for Mohamed Sanu. That did not work out well. But anyway, Nikhil Harry, their first round pick last season. He did not redshirt. He came into the season pretty much at the end. Uh, but he didn't really do much. I mean, it was kind of an injury-wasted campaign uh, as a rookie. Now, I could be wrong, but I think when all of the fantasy websites kind of update their rankings to include Cam, we'll see him slotted around quarterback 15 in most spots. That's kind of my estimation based on what I'm reading and based on my own projections. And his average draft position, his ADP, I think will be even maybe a little higher because I think fans will generally want to target the upside in later rounds, as they should. I mean, you look at guys like Lamar Jackson in the later rounds last year who kind of won a lot of people their league. When you have that rushing floor, it does numbers for your fantasy game. You, you really don't even have to be an accurate quarterback. To I mean, that that's Cam's main flaw, according to other people. I actually think he gets too much flack for how inaccurate he is. I actually think he's... I don't think he's inaccurate. I think I think sometimes he can be erratic, but I think a lot of people's judgments are based on when he was having shoulder issues, so he wasn't true to form. But people forget Cam Newton can throw the ball. A lot of people were saying that Lamar Jackson, you know, oh, I don't want to draft Lamar Jackson last year because, you know, he's not that accurate, and I just don't trust quarterbacks who aren't accurate. I mean, look at Josh Allen. Everyone's like, oh, Josh Allen is so terribly inaccurate. I'm, I, I can't spend a fantasy pick on him to be my starter. Well, look how stupid people have been if they avoided Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen for those reasons. Josh Allen's been a top six quarterback in points per game for the last two years. Lamar Jackson obviously was the MVP last season. Cam Newton can still be a very viable fantasy target and still finish top 10 or at least a quarterback one. Uh, you know, a top 12 quarterback without being an accurate thrower of the football. Um, as far as the skill position players go, I think it raises the floor of Julian Edelman. That's obvious. I mean, he was surprisingly wide receiver seven last year, despite playing through multiple painful injuries in the final five or six games. He, he gutted out a lot, probably more than anybody. Uh, Edelman's ADP is pick 81 overall via the Fantasy Pros ADP and He's even lower, around 91 overall, 
in FFPC, which, you know, it's hard to get accurate average draft positions right now because it's so early in the offseason and then most uh, semi-competitive to casual players haven't drafted yet. But in FFPC, these are high-stakes leagues where they're actually spending money on the league. So you know people are taking it seriously. And his ADP, Julian Edelman's ADP is 80, sorry, is 91 in those high-stakes drafts. That has to come up. Because you're looking at about 7th or 8th round. I think that climbs up to 6th round now that he has the possibility of Cam Newton th- throwing him the ball. And, of course, there's all these rumors that Cam Newton may not start. He may not be fully healthy. But, again, that's all, that's all part of his ADP. I mean, I, think, I, I don't think any expert out there is saying, oh, Cam Newton, you know, I'm putting all my money. He's definitely going to start 100%. There's no way they start Jared Stidham. I mean, if Cam Newton's healthy, I don't see how they would. But, you know, there's plenty of veterans have gone to the Patriots before and flaked out or flamed out. You know, all your Chad Ochocinco's and, you know, tons of veterans have gone to the Patriots before and just not been worth it. But either way, I digress here. I think Nikhil Harry becomes a, a more attractive sleeper. He was already kind of a deep round prospect by a lot of experts, and now I think he's actually probably worthy of that sleeper pick. And Mohamed Sanu, in the deepest of PPR formats, he's already working out with Mohamed Sanu, so maybe they're going to get a little rapport there. Uh, Sanu really couldn't show what he had last season because after the Patriots traded for him, he did get hurt. So he's kind of playing through injury and missed some games. So as far as the running backs go, I mean, because Cam Newton's presence is definitely going to have a ripple effect on, I mean, that's what happens when you gain a quarterback of Cam Newton's caliber. Uh, when you're upgrading from Jared Stidham to Cam Newton, it's going to have ripple effects throughout the fantasy football landscape and the community there. Uh, the experts will have their opinions. And one of the debates I've seen so far is how they are treating Sony Michelle and James White. And they were awful last year, especially Sony Michelle. And Sony Michelle, you know, their argument is that, oh, Cam Newton definitely, you know, raises their draft stock because you know, puts them on the fantasy radar. Their average draft position was both around 90 overall. So again, like round, I don't know, eight. But it really didn't feel good if you were doing mock drafts and you were drafting Sonny Michelle. Like when you clicked that button, you felt queasy. You're like, oh gosh, his game log was so awful last year. Why am I doing this? Now that they have Cam Newton, yeah, their value is raised. But I wouldn't say it's to the point where I'm actually actively targeting them you have to remember cam newton means that you know he's gonna steal goal line carries michelle will get you know there will be some goal line theft carries where cam newton steals touchdowns and that's where that was really the only thing keeping michelle remotely valuable in fantasy football was his goal line touchdowns he was the goal line back for what historically has been uh you know potent offense so if Michelle's not scoring touchdowns, that's going to be pretty problematic for him. And as far as James White, James White goes, now James White, you know, his bread was buttered with Tom Brady. I mean, Tom Brady, they had that great rapport going, that great chemistry, and they always have. Cam Newton, you know, I don't really know if he's going to have that with James White. And the other thing is that mobile quarterbacks like Cam Newton don't really tend to feed the ball to 
when they check, they don't really tend to check down to running backs as often because they can just scramble and pick up the first down with their legs. So there are all kinds of studies done by plenty of experts who are smarter than I who have shown that you know the more mobile a quarterback is, the less peppered that running back is going to be in the, in the screen game because, again, they're going to – they're going to default to their legs rather than throwing that check down to the running back. So I don't know if Cam Newton really, really increases the value of Sony, Michelle, and James White too, too much. Not At least not to the point where I'm personally looking at them as, oh, yeah, I really you know, want them in my draft. So let's move on to the next bit of news, and that is, I mean, you, you've probably heard enough about Cam Newton by this point. I mean, it's all over ESPN. So let's move to the next bit of news, and that is 49ers wide receiver Debo Samuel, a popular breakout candidate. He broke his foot in a workout session with teammates. This is devastating because Samuel is really fun to watch. His rushing touchdown against Seattle last year in Week 17 actually won me one of my fantasy football leagues last year. It won me the championship. That was the play that kind of uh, put me over my opponent and sealed it. So I'm, I, I, I love Debo Samuel. I'm, of course, a little biased to him. But I'm trying not to show favoritism here because the initial indications are that he will be sidelined for three to four months. And I've heard conflicting timelines for this. Uh, what is, it's a, called a Jones fracture. And some timelines are more optimistic. But I'm pessimistic when it comes to injuries. I mean, you can ask any of my friends, any of the people who've read any of my draft guides, if anyone's injured, if somebody gives me a six to eight week timeline, I'm assuming that he's going to be out for at least 10 weeks. I mean, that's just my nature. Historically, I think that's the best bet is to always bet against people who have injuries because the reports on those players are almost always optimistic and there are setbacks way more often than not. And I shouldn't say more often than not, maybe more, way more often than people realize. And when players come back from these injuries, and this is way more often than not, they start slow. It takes them a couple of games to get truly back into form. And some players, depending on the injury, don't really ever get back to form until they have a full offseason of recovery because football is such a grind. So point is, I'm pretty pessimistic on injuries, and you will find that to be a theme throughout this fantasy football podcast. But as far and this will be no different for Debo Samuel. I, I somebody's given me a, I've read six to eight week timelines, and I'm just I'm not really convinced. I think that he's more than a 50 50 chance of landing on the pup list, the physically unable to perform list, which would sideline him for six, the, at least the first six games of the 2020 season, assuming it starts on time, which is no real assumption. But if it does, I don't really. You know, if I had to put money on it, I wouldn't expect Debo Samuel out there at least for the first couple of weeks. So that severely hinders his draft stock. And look, Debo is somebody who relies on his explosiveness. I mean, he, you know, he's such an explosive player with the ball in his hand. And I love his offense with Kyle Shanahan. I love how they use him as a runner. And that really kind of gives him a rushing floor that a lot of other receivers don't really have. And I was thinking, based on his strong second half of the season, that he could have a DJ Moore-like year two jump. And they're they're kind of similar players. And but I was game logging him, and that's kind of when I go through everybody's game log, and I kind of try to put context behind all of their stats. And it's a really intense process. It takes me, 
you know, at least a month of doing this, of going through every player's game logs. And one thing I noticed about Debo Samuel's, you know, Debo Samuel, his final 11 games, and this is post Emmanuel Sanders injury, and he got a snap increase after that. So we're talking eight regular season games and three playoff games. And that's probably the best judgment of how you can kind of uh, evaluate Debo Samuel going into the 2020 season. You know, this is after he was a rookie last year. So this is after uh, Emmanuel Sanders left. This is, you know, also including his playoff games when it mattered most. You know, he put up, this is 11-game sample size right here, 67 targets, 45 catches, 702 yards, and two touchdowns in 11 games. Doesn't sound that great. But then he also had 15 carries for 223 rushing yards and two rushing touchdowns. So, yeah, I mean, I was getting pretty excited about him based on his raw number, raw proration right there, uh, or extrapolation, if you will. But then I was diving a little deeper, and I noticed that George Kittle, was out for two of his best weeks, weeks 10 and 11. If you go by, back and look look at it, this is when Demio Samuel, you know, week 10, 11 targets, 8 catches, 112 yards, 0 touchdowns. Week 11, 10 catches, oh, sorry, 10 targets, 8 catches, 134 yards, 0 touchdowns. But these were his only two games in the entire 11 game, actually entire season really, but in, in this sample, 11 games, where he had 9 or more targets, six or more catches and it was two his two highest receiving yardage totals of the entire season and these were the two games that George Kittle was out so that's kind of a game logging red flag to me and I I think that speaking of Kittle I mean this his absence is got to be seen as a positive for George Kittle and it definitely has to be seen as a positive for their first round rookie receiver who they drafted Brandon Ayuk uh, cool name there. He's definitely on the sleeper radar in regular redraft leagues now. And for deeper leagues, for deeper cuts here, Kendrick Bourne and offensive weapon Jalen Hurd, who was kind of redshirted last year, they might play more of a role now, especially if Debo Samuel goes on PUP. But I can't really find myself drafting Debo Samuel, at least until we get a lot more positive news about his injury. I tried really hard going into his game logging to like Debo Samuel, but I couldn't really get past the George Kittle stat anyway. So I'm probably out on Debo Samuel, especially now that he has the injury. I'll let somebody else take that injury risk. Very good. You know something? No soup for you. Come back one year. All right, let's get to the main event here, and that is breaking down Matthew Barry's Top 100 Facts article, which I find to be kind of the opening of the fantasy football season, at least for casual or semi-competitive fantasy football managers. It's one of the first articles people read when they log in ESPN and see their draft kit, and they start to do their research. 100 Facts is right there. And it's certainly one of the most well-known, anticipated, and kind of infamous articles, uh, infamous articles each off-season. Today, I'm going to kind of lay out some of my favorite facts and least favorite facts, and kind of provide extra analysis, arguments for and against his stances on uh, his players. And what he does, if you're not familiar with it, somehow, if you've been living under a fantasy rock, 
what he does is he has a it, the article is what it sounds like. It's just a hundred facts. They are all true. There's no disputing the facts themselves. But as he describes perfectly in the intro of his article, that facts can be skewed to fit a narrative. I think we're learning that now more than ever. Oh God, I hate that I said that. that that's like the phrase that everybody hears now because of this COVID thing. Everybody, you know, all the marketing companies like now more than ever or now in these troubling times, you know, now more than ever is like the biggest like cliche ever. That's why I don't read the newspaper because it's garbage. And I didn't even mean to use it in the sense to have anything to do with COVID, but I just hate that I said that. Are you kidding me? Where are we at in society today? I will move on though, but... You can kind of see now, I wanted to say it again, you can kind of see now that fantasy analysts will skew stats to fit their narrative, to be more persuasive on a certain stance. And Matthew Berry talks about that and describes it really well in the intro of his article. You got to check it out, of course. But I'm going to be going through his most important facts, and we are going to get started right now. And... He says facts one through eight. Um, they're about da- they're about Dak Prescott. Okay, uh, number one in 2019, nine of the top ten quarterbacks had at least 200 rushing yards. I think that's a great stat right there because it really kind of uh, describes exactly you know kind of the trend right now. If you take a look at all the top quarterbacks right now in fantasy football, that rushing floor has been huge for these guys. I mean, just think about all the elite quarterbacks in fantasy football, your Pat Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, uh, Deshaun Watson, Dak Prescott, Josh Allen, uh, uh, Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but all of those guys who are arguably in the top eight all have massive rushing floors to where if they're not getting it done through there, you're at least going to pick up a couple first downs and maybe 30 rushing yards on the ground, maybe a few rushing touchdowns, uh, which are worth more than passing touchdowns in a lot of leagues. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I love that he opened up with that stat. I do think it's a big theme that a lot of experts are realizing this offseason and maybe even last offseason. Again, nine of the top 10 fantasy quarterbacks had at least 200 rushing yards. I'm not going to stop after each stat. I'm going to go more thematic here. Uh, last season, Dak Prescott had the second most deep completions in the NFL. Stat number three, he had the third highest completion percentage on deep passes and he had the fourth most deep pass attempts this is very valuable in fantasy by the way and I think that's why Matthew Barry is spelling it out because you don't lose points when you have an incompletion on a deep ball so it is better when your quarterbacks are more aggressive with the football uh, he had the fifth highest yards per attempt YPA is a very good uh, kind of telling stat for a real quarterback success I would argue it's just as important as quarterback rating, if not more important. Um, and this year, the Dallas Cowboys, again, back with the facts, drafted CeeDee Lamb, who was tied for the second in the nation with touchdowns of 35-plus yards last season. And last season, Dak Prescott had 11 weekly finishes as a top 12 quarterback. That kind of speaks to a consistency there. Only Lamar Jackson had more. And then the last Dak Prescott stat is, or I, should, I keep saying stat, I should say fact, is 
Since Amari Cooper joined the Cowboys, Prescott is second best quarterback in total fantasy points. He joined the Cowboys, if you remember, I believe it was week 10 of last uh, year, uh, around the trade deadline of last year. And the last stat, I mean, the last fact is, as of this writing, Dak Prescott is being drafted as a quarterback six on ESPN. So I think that's the main takeaway, is that all all these facts really go in favor of Dak Prescott. And Barry's first hardcore stance here is that Dak Prescott should be drafted higher in fantasy football. If you wanted to sum it up, that there it is right there. He should not be the quarterback six. And I love this series of facts, and I love that he opened with them because not only do I agree with it, but I think most experts do as well. And, and part of my job with this podcast is I'm going to be giving you all a pulse on how the expert community is viewing certain players. Both uh, part of the reason I wanted to call myself fantasy law guys, because I wanted arguments on both sides. I wanted it to be like lawyers arguing the pros for a player and the cons for a player or against a certain player. And me kind of sum it all up for you guys. So you don't have to go read every fantasy magazine. That's kind of old school uh, but you don't have to go re- subscribing to every single site or reading every single article out there. You don't have to be spending, you know, a hundred hours of research for your fantasy drafts. Hopefully, you can listen to this podcast, and hopefully, I'll give you the pulse on what the best experts are saying. And because I don't work for a fantasy football site, I can freely um, piggyback off those experts and give them the rightful credit. You know, there's no censorship of me, you know, promoting other experts just because I'm for a rival website or anything like that. So, um, you know, there's no fantasy politics, if you will, involved in this. So point, you know, that was a little bit of a ramble. But point is, most experts are actually in favor of the idea that Dak Prescott should be higher than quarterback six. He's been drafted in FFPC leagues as which, again, is the high stakes competitive leagues right now as quarterback four and generally I see him as quarterback three and or quarterback four not quarterback six and this is only behind um, this is only behind obviously Lamar Jackson Pat Mahomes and there's a little bit of a gap and then quarterback three is kind of up in the air between Dak Prescott Russell Wilson uh, some people like Kyler Murray to break out but you know and some people even were are sticking pat with Deshaun Watson despite him losing DeAndre Hopkins but you know when I'm game logging I noticed that Dak Prescott in his 16 games, 21.1 points per game. That would have been good enough to be quarterback five. Okay, and that's behind only Lamar Jackson, Pat Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, and Drew Brees in a points per game figure. And again, Brees had the shortened season. So Dak was able to play all the games. And his play did wane a little, kind of weeks 12 through 17, because the Cowboys kind of unraveled a little. And a lot of that was due to injury to Amari Cooper. As Matthew Barry kind of alluded to in one of his stats, Dak Prescott's numbers have been strongly correlated with Amari Cooper's uh, presence and his health. And Dak also battled a few minor injuries of his own, namely a, a, a sprained left hand and, and index finger on his throwing hand in Week 14. And he had a shoulder AC joint issue uh, in Week 16. So there's a lot to like about Dak. Uh, from a game logging perspective, but also from just looking at a situation. I mean, that's the best pro Dak argument is offensive coordinator. Kellen Moore took over the play calling from Jason Garrett. uh, And the offense was much more aggressive as Barry alluded to. They were deep passing a lot more often than under the conservative minded Jason Garrett. And 
instead of catering the offense to Zeke, you saw this philosophy shift where they, instead of focusing on the running game, the Cowboys centered around Dak Prescott. They threw a lot more often and more de- uh, further down the field. His supporting cast is fantastic. Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, CeeDee Lamb. I mean, they probably have the best trio of wide receivers in the National Football League. Blake Jarwin, pretty athletic, capable tight end, and Zeke is no slouch out of the backfield. And this is not to mention Tony Pollard, who excels out of the backfield in that in that receiving area. Offensive line returns four or five starters, minus Travis Frederick, which is a pretty big loss, but overall the continuity should be there. And the Dallas defense is not that good. They lost Robert Quinn, Kerry Hyder, Michael Bennett, their defensive ends. They lost Malik Collins. They lost Christian Covington, rotational defensive tackle. They lost stud cornerback Byron Jones. They lost strong safety Jeff Heath. You know, you don't need to know all this, but the point is that the defense is not that good. They play indoors. Dak, again, is the rushing floor that we talked about, and he's also entering a, a contract year. So there's a lot of situational analysis here in favor of Dak Prescott, especially being higher than quarterback six. Uh, I'm going to pull some great nuggets right here. I'm. This is by KD Drummond. Uh, at KD Drummond NFL. He works for the Cowboys Wire, so maybe a little biased, but I think it's a great stat that shows why Dak Prescott should be at least drafted at quarterback three or four. He says, I'm just here to remind you that Dak Prescott's Cowboys played 10 of their 16 games against top 15 DVOA defenses. This is per Football Outsiders. Defenses number 1, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 12 twice because a division opponent, and 15 uh, in the Football Outsiders DVOA defensive metric. His wide receivers and tight end dropped a league-high 46 passes, and he was top 5 to 10 in a plethora of advanced passing stats. All true. Great points by KD Drummond. They could be added to Matthew Berry's Top 100 Facts article. And then Jeff Ratcliffe at Jeff Ratcliffe, who works for FTN now, which is an emerging fantasy site, uh, or betting site, I should say. Dak Prescott's fantasy finishes. 2016 as a rookie, quarterback 6. 2017, quarterback 11. 2018, quarterback 10. 2019, quarterback 2. So you know if you're drafting Dak Prescott you know, at quarterback 3 or 4, because that's probably where it's going to take, because uh, I don't think his quarterback 6 ADP is going to hold. Um, you know that you're at least getting pretty much a top 10 quarterback. So let's move on to the next facts here. That's enough on Dak Prescott. Uh, A lot of people don't like that I spent that much time on the Cowboys. Uh, I don't want to be like ESPN here where they just only talk about the NFC East uh, when they talk about football shows, the Eagles, Cowboys, Redskins, and Giants. But, of course, you know, I'm opening up the facts like that. Facts 9 through 11, Kyler Murray was fourth in pass attempts outside the pocket. He was 21st in touchdown percentage on passes outside of the pocket. And since 2018, new Cardinals addition DeAndre Hopkins is tied for the most touchdown receptions on plays where his quarterback is outside of the pocket. He also has the most, second most receiving yards on plays where his quarterback is outside the pocket and the third most receptions on plays where his quarterback is outside the pocket. Now, these are facts that I didn't know. I believe the gist of this is that DeAndre Hopkins is a very quarterback-friendly target outside of the pocket when things get chaotic. and I, But I'm not really sure that these facts really move the needle much for me. 
on Kyler Murray, and I think that was the point of them. Uh, I mean, to be honest, it really doesn't do much of anything for me. And this is no offense to the stats. I think they're cool stats. I, I definitely learned something there. But to me, the more important thing when you're looking at either DeAndre Hopkins or Murray is that the history of drafting fantasy receivers uh, from DeAndre Hopkins' fantasy perspective is it, it's bleak. I mean, and this is coupled with the COVID offseason where you're taking away mini camps and possibly preseason games and valuable reps for your quarterback and receiver to grow some chemistry and timing. I don't doubt that DeAndre Hopkins helps Murray's fantasy outlook. Uh, Murray was kind of playing with scrubs at receiver last season. Um, but I, I would have focused on this fact. This is my favorite uh, game logging fact that I discovered. Uh, Kyler Murray kind of sustained a hamstring injury against the Rams. I believe it was in weeks, uh, week 11 last year. and I'm sorry, week 13 is what it was. And pre-hamstring injury in their bye week, Murray was at 19.93 points per game. And after his hamstring injury, and this is the final five games. Now, he wasn't on the injury report for all five games. So it is kind of just, I will admit, there's kind of an assumption by me that he was battling the hamstring injury. But the rushing numbers were down. Again, before the hamstring injury, 19.93 points per game. And in the final five games, 13.07. So he lost more than almost seven points a game after this hamstring injury. And I think that would have probably been better suited if you're trying to prop up Kyler Murray as opposed to talking about DeAndre Hopkins, which obviously DeAndre Hopkins is going to help his fantasy outlook. I don't know if it's going to be solely because DeAndre Hopkins is really good outside the pocket, and so is Kyler Murray. Anyway, next set of facts uh, 13 through 14 last season, Bruce Arians offense. These are about Tom Brady. Bruce Arians offense ranked six in pass percentage, uh, in Tom Brady's past 16 games with 40 plus passing attempts. He has 301 fantasy points. That's 18.8 per game. And that point total would have ranked his quarterback six last season. And Jameis Winston was quarterback five last season with 305 fantasy points. Um, I, I think the point here is that Bruce Arians loves to throw the football uh, or loves his quarterbacks throwing the football. And if Jameis Winston finished as quarterback five last year under Arians, then TB12 certainly can best that, right? Um, however, I sort of disagree. I, I'm going to, this is going to be my second, uh, not negative stance, but second critique here. I think Winston is a much more aggressive quarterback than Tom Brady. I think he takes more shots downfield into coverage. And uh, to be clear, obviously Brady is better than Winston. And, but that doesn't always lead to more fantasy points, right? I, I think Jameis's reckless playing style is conducive to fantasy points. And um, Connor Allen of 444 Football put it best in this recent article. He said, Tom Brady is a significant upgrade from Jameis Winston because of his decision-making and his lack of turnovers, but not because of his arm strength, not because of his inaccuracy or gun-slinging prowess. Jameis Winston is a downfield thrower with an extremely high tolerance for risk. Brady likes to attack the middle of the field in a short area in intermediate range and settle for easier throws. Comparing their average depth of target last year is illuminating. Brady's was 7.6, while Jameis's was 10.4. So that's great stuff from Connor here. And he was talking about it in the context of fading uh, Mike Evans, the wide receiver. But 
I think you can use it for Tom Brady as well because the Bucks had they had no defense last season. They had no running game whatsoever. And ironically, you can make the argument that Jameis Winston's worst enemy, his 30 interceptions, actually helped him accrue fantasy points. Why? Because the Bucks were always racking up in garbage time. His pick sixes gave opponent sorry gave Winston back the ball immediately. This isn't to say Winston, I mean, sorry, Brady won't finish as quarterback five, but it's something to think about. Jameis Winston had 5,100 passing yards last season, 30 touchdowns. If you, these are his raw fantasy numbers. If you were to bet the over or under on Brady hitting those numbers, where would you bet? Over or under 5,100 passing yards, 5,100, and 30 touchdowns. I think the touchdowns is a decent bet to hit, but I don't think Brady's throwing for 5,000 yards because I don't think he'll need to. But moving on, facts 15 through 21. Last season, Aaron Rodgers was held to less than 15 points in 10 of 16 games. Less than 50 points, 10 of 16 games. That's a great stat right there. Um, he had his lowest completion percentage since 2015. Third lowest completion percentage in the NFL on deep passes. And he was off target on 20% of his throws, fourth highest rate in the NFL. And since the start of 2018, only two other quarterbacks have been off target on a higher percentage of throws. This is, of course, subjective. I'm not sure who's rating the off target throws, but um, but again, this is me speaking, not Matthew Barry. But uh, that would be damning. I mean, the fact that only two other quarterbacks in 2018 have been more off target on a higher percentage of throws. That's pretty crazy. I know Aaron Rodgers leads the league in throwaways, but that's because we'll get to more of that in a second. But uh, again, back with the Barry's facts here, both pass catchers on the Green Bay Packers that they added this year via free agency in the draft are coming off major injury, Devin Funchess and third round rookie tight end. Um, I don't even know how to say his name, but he's a guy that I've never heard of in the draft process. Uh, but basically, in short summary here, the Packers did not add any help for Aaron Rodgers in terms of his receiving supporting cast, and that's something he desperately needed. In uh, and, and this is another fact, in head coach Matt LaFleur's first season, Aaron Rodgers had his fewest pass attempts in a season in which he played all 16 games since 2014. And last season, none of that mattered, Barry says, because... They went. The Packers went 13 and three, so it didn't matter in real life. It was their best regular season record since 2011, and they went to the NFC Championship game. Uh, I love that last point because it just kind of sums up that you know just be, just because Aaron Rodgers' fantasy numbers were low, the Packers were still really good last year. So there's no reason the Packers need to tweak or try to fix their offense because they were winning games last year. Now they'll probably regress on that front, but. Uh, what leads credence to this idea is that the Packers didn't try to fix their passing game because they didn't add any receivers. They didn't add any tight ends as Barry alluded to. And, you know, I think most experts are coming along to the idea that Aaron Rodgers, who was obviously this top five talent for the longest time, you know, he's obviously declined statistically and whether or not you believe he is still a top five real life quarterback, I actually tend to, give him the benefit of the doubt there. I actually tend to think that he's still a very, very good, if not elite, real-life quarterback, and he's just being asked to kind of be a game manager under Matt LaFleur. But the point, you know, being a very good real-life quarterback doesn't 
always get you fantasy points. It's about your situation, and that's what's killing him. And Aaron Rodgers has turned, he's kind of morphed into a risk-averse quarterback. Uh, and this was a before Matt LaFleur, but Matt LaFleur even more so. He wants to run the ball, and he's so conservative. So I kind of see why Aaron Rodgers, you know, average draft position, you know, after quarterback 10. And some people, will, fans will look at that and be like, oh, yeah, I'm getting Aaron Rodgers and at quarterback 12. Be careful, it's a trap! Well, you might be getting Aaron Rodgers' talent. Maybe he hasn't dropped off in terms of actual talent. But that doesn't mean you're getting Aaron Rodgers' volume. And what happens if Devontae Adams, who went down last year, what happens if he goes down? Now his top receiver is Alan Lazard? You're going to be surprised by how ugly it gets. You don't even know my real name. I'm the Lizard King. Marcus Valdez-Scantling, Devin Funtress. I mean, come on. If Devontae Adams goes down, I mean, you're in a run-first offense. I mean, the Packers spent their first pick on Aaron Rodgers' successor, and they spent their next pick on a bruising goal-line running back. So what does that tell you about how much they're trying to help Aaron Rodgers? Facts 21 through 27 last season. The New York Giants were fourth in overall pass percentage. They were third in red zone pass percentage. Daniel Jones had at least 20 yards rushing in seven of his 12 starts. So that, there's that rushing floor we've already talked about. Um, despite having 12 games in which he attempted at least five passes, so the 12 games that he basically played, Jones had four games with 28 or more than fantasy points. That tied for third most in the NFL. And from week eight on, Jones was the fifth best fantasy quarterback. Second half of the season, fifth best fantasy quarterback. That's a huge stat. And this is actually my favorite stat in the entire article. Daniel Jones played zero snaps with Saquon Barkley, Sterling Shepard, Evan Ingram, Golden Tate, and Darius Slayton all on the field together. And that that's my favorite stat in the article, entire article is it really speaks to the fact that Daniel Jones has a pretty awesome supporting cast here. Barkley, Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, Darius Slayton, nice receiver trio. They all do different things. Evan Ingram at tight end, Barkley out of the backfield. This is nice. The Giants have upgraded their offensive line. The only problem with his supporting gas is they've brought in Jason Garrett. And, and you know, I worry about Jason Garrett. I worry about also Daniel Jones's fumbles. He had about 63 fumbles last season. I worry about his ball security. And I worry about kind of Jason Garrett kind of slowing down the pace and being kind of a run-heavy team with Saquon Barkley. He's not exactly the most creative mind. We saw, and we've already talked about on this on this episode, that once Dallas gave the reins, the play calling reins to Kellen Moore, they were a downfield passing attack rather than and they were aggressive rather than a conservative, you know, Ezekiel Elliott funnel based offense. So, yeah, I mean, I do worry that Jason Garrett's now the offense coordinator there, and but. But, actually, I'm not even going to say but. The other negative about Daniel Jones, because we're saying all the positive about Daniel Jones, about his supporting cast, about everything like that. I also want to say one more negative thing about him. His opening schedule is brutal. Because when you're drafting Daniel Jones, unless you're in a super flex league, which you should be in, but unless you are, most people aren't, unfortunately, you're drafting him as a backup or maybe a streaming option. Maybe you wait until round 11 and 12 to pick your two quarterbacks and you pick you know, then back-to-back like Daniel Jones, and then you pick uh, right after him, you pick maybe, I don't know, Aaron Rodgers. So, you know, that, that's a pretty good strategy. It's one that I've used in the past. But 
but his weeks one through four are brutal. He the Giants open up with the Pittsburgh Steelers, who had an amazing defense in the second, the best defense in the NFL in the second half of last season, at Chicago Bears, San Francisco 49ers, who are also great on defense last year, and then at Los Angeles Rams, uh, who aren't that great on defense, but it's just another travel. So uh, and it's, and it's cross-country trip. I mean, they have to go from New York all the way to Los Angeles. So, anyway, that's a brutal schedule opening slate for Daniel Jones. So keep that in mind if you're drafting him as your quarterback too. Uh, we'll move on. Uh, fact number 28: Jay Gruden was the offensive coordinator of the Cincinnati Bengals from 2011 to 2013. In those seasons, in order, Andy Dalton was quarterback 20, quarterback 13, quarterback six in fantasy points per game. Uh, and 2011 was his rookie season. Jay Gruden, Jay, excuse me, Jay Gruden was the head coach of Washington for 2014 in t- until 2000 until week five of the 2019 season. That's five years. In 2014, Washington had three different quarterback start games. Washington had four di- in 2018. They had four different quarterback start games. In 2019, Jay, Jay Gruden was fired five weeks in. From 2015 to 2017, Kirk Cousins was QB 11, QB 6, and QB 7 in fantasy points per game. Uh, and last season, Gardner Minshew had at least 16 fantasy points in 8 of 12 starts, and he had at least 27 rushing yards in 8 of 12 starts. So again, that rushing floor theme coming up. And he, Gardner Minshew, just got Jay Gruden as offensive coordinator, and as of this riding, riding Minshew's ADP is a quarterback 27. So what Barry was talking about when he's talking about how Washington are all these different quarterbacks, he's trying to say the year's basically when the summary of this fact sequence is that when Jay Gruden has had a quarterback for 16 games, be it Andy Dalton, be it Kirk Cousins, be it Gardner Minshew, which by the way, isn't the cream of the crop quarterback selection there, but when he has had those quarterbacks, again, I'll read you quarterback 20, quarterback 13, quarterback six, quarterback 11, quarterback six, quarterback seven, quarterback. Uh, I'm not sure what Minshew was there, but again, 16, uh, fantasy points at least in eight of his 12 starts. So when he's had those quarterbacks for 16-game season, Jay Gruden is a healthy presence for fantasy football statistics and being accrued by your quarterback. So I'm fully on board with the stat. I have very simple commentary. Gruden's presence, along with Ben McAdoo, means that the Jags will be throwing often. Um, You know, I think that this team will be tanking. I think they'll be losing constantly. That will be positive game scripts for them. All right, sorry, it should be negative game scripts for them, but positive for Gardner Minshew racking up garbage time stats. Um, and I think that, you know, this is a fact that isn't technically a fact, but this is an opinion of mine. The Jaguars, unlike most tanking teams or most bad teams, where they would replace their struggling quarterback, if he's thrown for, I don't know, two touchdowns and three interceptions a game like Minshew might, but he's still putting up fancy numbers. But a struggling quarterback is usually replaced by a bad team. But this is the scenario where the Jaguars are actually probably actively tanking for a guy like Trevor Lawrence or maybe even Justin Fields. And Minshew's the perfect tank quarterback. And they don't have anyone behind Gardner Minshew. They, they got rid of Nick Foles. So Minshew's job security for a tanking, horrible team is actually very secure. So that's something to keep in mind. I definitely think... Uh, Minshew should make noise as in super flex leagues, uh, which you should be in one. Again, uh, I will drive that point home on another podcast. But let's move on. 
Fact 36, since 2014, Phillip Rivers has finished as a top 10 quarterback in total points just once. Uh, to, uh, last season, when Rivers was pressured, he had more interceptions than touchdowns, 7 to 6. Last season, when Rivers was pressured, he ranked 21st in points per pass attempt. Last season, the Chargers were 7th best at preventing pressure. And last season, the Colts, Rivers' new team, were 25th best at preventing pressure. This is one fact set that I did not find particularly useful. Nobody's really, first of all, nobody's really drafting Phillip Rivers to be a top 10 quarterback. He's being drafted as quarterback 23. So the fact that he hasn't been a top 10 quarterback or has been just once since 2004, not really that relevant to me. Rivers loses an amazing skill position supporting cast in terms of Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Hunter Henry, Austin Eckler out of the backfield. And, and he goes to the Colts, who don't have a great supporting cast, uh, especially not as the Chargers do. But one advantage I would say he has over the Chargers is the, the Colts have a great offensive line. So I don't know exactly why Barry's kind of pinning this Chargers offensive line to be better, or at least alluding to this Colts offensive line is going to be a problem for Phillip Rivers. I don't see that to be the case at all. I think 99 out of 100 fantasy experts, I guess if you exclude Matthew Barry, he can be the one, um, a fantasy analyst would say that the Colts offensive line is an upgrade over what Los Angeles Chargers have. Uh, I think the Colts have five quality starters on the O-line, one of the few teams that have that, whereas the Chargers have two. I would say maybe Trey Turner, Brian Belaga, maybe. Uh, I'm sorry, maybe Trey Turner, but definitely Brian Belaga. Maybe 1.5 quality starters. And it's difficult to measure pre- measure pressure, especially because Rivers, you know, he was probably great at stepping up into the pocket, and Jacoby Brissett probably didn't have as much pocket awareness to do that. And he likely... I mean, that was his main, one of his main flaws, that he held onto the ball longer than Rivers. So how are you going to judge offensive line pressure stats out of that? So Hard to tell the good guys from the bad. Uh, to me, I don't think this stat really... Uh, I, mean, I mean, again, it is a fact, but I don't think it is accurate in terms of, in terms of portraying the right narrative on Phillip Rivers. I see his offensive line as being upgraded with the Colts. The real issue for me is that Rivers has lost his arm strength. I mean, it's probably, you know, been three years that he started the season out pretty well before he progressed and finished horribly because his arm died midway through the season or towards the end of the season. And it's probably due to years of shotgunning, uh, shotgunning, years of Phil Rivers is not shotgunning anything. Um, He might be in the shotgun, but years of shot putting and bad mechanics to his arm. I mean, he's always got that sidearm throw. And so his arm's kind of giving out on him or wearing down as he gets old and closer to his 40s. And last year, uh, QB Datamine charted Rivers as being a, a top half quarterback in terms of just accuracy. They chart every throw for every quarterback for the first three quarters of the game, of games last season. And he was the least accurate quarterback in fourth quarters of games last season. So pretty interesting stat there. And it just kind of also gives credence to the fact that, or supports the idea that his arm is, is dying.
now let's go to a more positive point here. Uh, facts 41 through 44 from 2017 to 2019, 83% of running backs who finished the season top 10 at the position caught at least 50 passes. I love this fact. It's definitely valuable in PPR formats. Um, since the start of 2018, he, Austin Eckler, sixth best running back in yards after the catch. Sorry, in yards per rush after first contact. Sixth best yards per rush after first contact since the start of 2018. So two-year sample size. In week five last season, Melvin Gordon returned to the Chargers. And from week five on last season, Austin Eckler was still the fifth best running back. This is a great fact because I feel like people don't realize how good Eckler was when uh, when Melvin Gordon did return from his holdout. Um, since Austin Eckler entered the NFL, Austin Eckler is third among running backs, a minimum of 100 carries, in fantasy points per touch. He's been always been so efficient. And 44, Melvin Gordon is now a member of the Denver Broncos. So Austin Eckler is definitely one of those polarizing, I would say one of the most polarizing picks in fantasy this year. On one hand, the big issue with Eckler is that with Philip Rivers being gone, Tyrod Taylor and maybe Justin Herbert take over at quarterback. And Taylor is a Herbert is a rookie, and we don't know when he's going to come in. But Taylor, assuming he starts the season, is a mobile quarterback who may opt to run instead of peppering Austin Eckler with targets, like Philip Rivers definitely showed a tendency to do. Um, I'm projecting Eckler to have far fewer targets and receptions than he had than he did last season, and I'm not. That's despite Melvin Gordon being gone. And I'm not totally convinced the Chargers will increase his rushing work, workload either, despite the absence of Gordon. But on the other hand, as Barry puts it, Eckler was awesome, fifth best running back even with Gordon, and now he doesn't have to fight with Gordon, and. I think what should have been included in this article is Austin Eckler's splits with and without Gordon. Because now that he's without Gordon, I think his splits with and without Gordon become much more relevant. In Austin Eckler's first four games without Melvin Gordon, 14 carries for 55 yards is on average. Not that wasn't his total output. 14 carries, 55 yards a game. He had three rushing touchdowns and three receiving touchdowns, and it all equated to 26.75 points per game. In his final 12 games with Gordon, again, Austin Eckler was still RB5, but he was averaging 16.83 points per game. That is almost a 10-point drop in points per game. It's massive. And I get that the first four games is a pretty small sample size, but that's the sample that we have without Melvin Gordon. So I do think it's particularly relevant. And football's, by nature, a small sample sport. I mean, it's not like the NBA. It's not like you can get these 82 games to have as a sample size. I feel like that's a common uh, detracting among the fantasy experts community where they're like, oh, well, you know, you can't show his splits there. That, that's small sample size. Yeah, so is pretty much every split you ever show or every stat you ever show in football because there's only 16 games in a season. You can make the argument that 16 games itself is a small sample size. But either way, Austin Eckler, absolutely dominant in RB1 without Melvin Gordon. And that I think that's a stat or a fact that should have been put into 
Barry's pro Austin Eckler argument. 45 through 47, last season in weeks one through five, Nick Chubb was RB5 in points per, on a points per game basis with 18.93 points per game. Last season in weeks 10 through 17, second half of the season, Nick Chubb was RB23 as opposed to RB5 on a points per game basis with 12.97 points per game. This is important because Kareem Hunt, side note here, this is important because Kareem Hunt returned from suspension in week 10. That's why these splits are relevant. He's not just picking random weeks here to show these uh, these splits. This is with and without Kareem Hunt. I do feel like that should be noted because it was not in the art in the article. Last season in weeks 10 through 17, Kareem Hunt was RB24 in points per game, 12.67 points per game. And you got to compare that to Nick Chubb's uh, in that same time frame, 12.97 points per game. So 0.3 points per game off, yet Chubb is RB9 on ESPN, and Kareem Hunt, RB27. And in fact, 47, Matthew Berry says, come on, guys, what are we doing here? Which I think is pretty funny. So I think experts pretty much all agree with Barry's take, or one of his takes, in that Kareem Hunt should be drafted higher. But I think they are torn on whether Nick Chubb should be drafted lower than his mid-second round ADP. Nick Chubb is one of the most talented and elite pure rushers in the NFL. He's graded out as Pro Football Focus' number one rated RB for the last two seasons. Um, He's great on all those broken tackle analytics and elusiveness rating and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it will undoubtedly be difficult for Chubb to return value if he's marginalized in the passing game. It's The interesting thing about this is that the analytics don't really suggest that Chubb can't catch or is, is not an efficient receiver. I think Evan Silva of Establish the Run did a great job of kind of spelling this out. Uh, it's not that he can't catch or is an efficient receiver, and it's not even that he can't pass protect is the reason he's going off on or getting subbed on passing downs but for whatever reason he's just lacked the opportunity his for whatever reason coaches have opted out of really using him in the passing game even dating back to his days at UGA so Nick Chubb averaged only 2.1 targets a game after Kareem Hunt returned from suspension and according to Graham Barfield uh, fantasypoints.com that was a 5% target share so when Kareem Hunt was active, Nick Chubb went down from four targets a game to 2.1, and he went all the way down to a 5% target share. Yikes, that's, that's not ideal for a PPR format. So the question is, I think, whether the new regime is going to give him the opportunity. And Kevin Stefanski, new coach, he comes in over from the Vikings. Um, they want to install the zone blocking scheme that Stefanski worked in with Gary Kubiak, very successful scheme. The Browns are building a physical football team. They hired offensive line guru slash coach Bill Callahan. They paid big money to mauling right tackle Jack Conklin. He's a great run blocker, one of the best. They they signed Austin Hooper, David Njoku. They have David Njoku for two tight end flexibility. They also traded for lead blocker and fullback Andy Janovich. So you know the Browns running game is going to be more efficient this season. 
And there are reports, of course, that the Browns want to use both backs. And Browns offensive coordinator Chad O'Shea said that Kareem Hunt has been involved in some of the team's virtual passing meetings. And there's been a lot of interaction and a lot of crossover from uh, alluding to running back and receiver. And he is also, Chad O'Shea also mentioned that there's been no decisions been made on who the third receiver for the Browns will be. And he cited both Rashard Higgins and Kareem Hunt as possibilities. They're going to put Kareem Hunt in the slot. That will help his fantasy stock, no doubt. And that will also probably help Nick Chubb. I mean, if, if Nick Chubb's going to be getting the passing downs as the running back, he's going to be running the passing routes out of the backfield and Kareem Hunt's going to be in the slot, then that works for both parties. But, you know, one of the most interesting things I've read on Nick Chubb that I, I have to share, it has nothing to do with their receiving output, but it's just one of the best things I've seen this offseason. In 2019 red zone stats, Nick Chubb inside the five-yard line, 15 attempts, minus 14 yards, two touchdowns. 15 carries, two touchdowns inside the five-yard line. That alone is surprising. But then when you show negative 14 yards, that's shocking. That just tells me that either, because you know Nick Chubb's a great running back, running rushing the ball. You know that just kind of said that that kind of leads me to believe that either defenses knew Nick Chubb was getting the ball inside the five. There was some kind of tell. Or or the Browns offensive line couldn't do anything about it. They just couldn't block when push come to shove, literally and figuratively, they couldn't block in on in a goal line situation to get Nick Chubb in the end zone. Fifteen carries, two touchdowns, negative fourteen yards. Inside the five. You better bet he will be more efficient than that under Kevin Stefanski. But again, whether he returns his mid-second round value in a PPR format, we just got to see how he's going to be used in the receiving game. And I think that's the, that's the big debate among the experts. Okay, we are halfway through Matthew Barry's Top 100 Facts article. We're going to get to the second half of this, and it's mainly running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends in episode two of this podcast. I wanted to do cool things like take Instagram questions and stuff like that. If you have any fantasy football questions at Fantasy Law Guys, where you can find me, please, please send me your questions. And if they're good, even if they aren't good and they're remotely related to fantasy football, I'll probably talk about them and discuss them on the air and give you a shout out. Uh, Today, we have time for Uh, Two segments that I would like to introduce in this debut podcast, the fantasy nugget of the day and the two-minute warning rant. So let's start with the fantasy nugget of the day. That'll just be a little stat that I'll leave you with, and you can kind of think about it on your own with no context. Today's fantasy nugget is about Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yeah, that guy. Ryan Fitzpatrick in his final 11 games, this is after... The Dolphins, you know, sucked for their first couple of games, put in Josh Rosen, and then they were like, oh, no, Josh Rosen's no good either. Let's throw Ryan Fitzpatrick back to the Wolves. And then he kind of picked up his play. Week 7 through 17, when he became a starter again, 20.19 points per game for Ryan Fitzpatrick, weeks 7 through 17, in the final 11 games, In a points-per-game setting, that would have been quarterback eight 
in points per game behind Lamar Jackson, Pat Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Dak Prescott, Drew Brees, Russ Wilson, Matthew Stafford, and then Ryan Fitzpatrick. His average draft position is quarterback 31. So that is your fantasy football nugget of the day. Okay, lastly, let's get to the two-minute warning rant. I'm going to end each show with a short rant, and I'll cut myself off after two minutes. I know a lot of you over there who know me are breathing a sigh of relief. I would thank goodness he's got a cutoff time for his rambling. I do. So today I want to encourage all listeners to abolish PPR or point per reception in favor of PPFD or PP1D, that is point per first down. Before I explain why you should abolish the most popular fantasy football scoring method, let's talk about why PPR was invented in the first place. PPR proponents cite three benefits to PPR. First, PPR creates more points and for more fantasy players and more scoring is more fun. That is a shitful reason to change the landscape of fantasy scoring. The second reason is because of strategic concerns, it balances out the scoring between positions. That is true. When fantasy football, or sorry, when PPR was invented, uh, it was invented to help equalize RB and receiver values. Um, When I started playing fantasy football, receivers couldn't hold a candle to running backs uh, because the league just didn't throw that much. Now in today's pass-happy NFL, there's no need for PPR anymore. This is an overcorrection, and if anything, the pendulum has already swung the other way. Yet the ESPN just decides to make this default PPR their default system last year. They're only 12 years too late. Number three, uh, it lessens the fantasy dependency on touchdowns. Well, so does point per first down, and that does so for reasons that actually matter. Catches in not moving the ball doesn't matter. First downs matter in real football. It's difficult to earn a first down. It's unquestionably a valuable play in real football, unlike a catch for zero yards, which is rewarded with a full point of PPR, um, which is basically participation trophies for scat backs and tiny slot receivers for actually touching the ball. Good for them. A two-yard catch in real football is worth the exact same value as the two-yard rush. So why is it that a two-yard catch in fake football is worth five times as much as a two-yard rush? It doesn't make any sense. When you're in a critical moment of the game and you see defenses stacking the box against Zeke Elliott on fourth and one, and the Cowboys run him and he claws and scratches and fights his way to that one-yard game for a critical first down to seal the game, and he only gets .1 points in fantasy, but in real life, that's a huge play. It sealed the game. But, but yet, any first down is a big play. But yet on first and 10, if Julian Edelman catches a pass for negative eight yards, he is awarded more points than Zeke's critical first down pickup. It makes no sense. Point of first down, it's easy to track. I, I get that no scoring system is perfect, but the goal shouldn't be to prioritize raw stats that don't have a meaning on the game. Touchdowns matter, yards matter, turnovers matter, points allowed matter, but catches in themselves, they don't matter. Only the yards you pick up before and after the catch is what you should be getting points for. You should be getting points for first downs. You should be getting points for touchdowns. No one should be getting points for the catches themselves. As of as of now, Yahoo offers point for first down setting. I strongly encourage you to try it out. You'll never go back. ESPN does not offer this setting, despite it being the year 2020. Despite the fact that you can, uh, ESPN allows you to start punters and head coaches and scores you for that. You still don't have the option to track first downs for fantasy football on the worldwide leader of sports. It is remarkable. Point for first down is the future of fantasy football. Whether ESPN realizes it or not, it makes the most sense. Make the change.
And that'll conclude today's episode. We'll get to the second half of Matthew Barry's Top 100 Facts article next time around. I hope you enjoyed listening. Please, please, please subscribe to this podcast and give me a five-star rating if you enjoyed the show. That kind of stuff really helps a new podcast grow. You can follow me at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram and pose your fancy questions, and I will answer them on the next show. Also, because I'm new to the podcast game, if you have any suggestions, maybe ideas for segments you'd like to hear, please let me know. Thanks for tuning in. See ya.